What's up, everybody? I'm Nick. I'm here with Ryan and Mark, and hey we yo. are Bible Dingers. And we have an exciting, absolutely educational episode for you guys today. We have a special guest on the show. His name is Michael Kruger, and he's talking about something very special to me. Why don't you tell us why we're doing this show, Ryan? First of all, his name is Dr. Michael Kruger, so you get that right. I did say Bruh. that. Okay. Second of all, we are talking about the topic of canonization, which is a large word. The root word of that word would be canon. And if you don't know what the word canon refers to, it refers to the books of the Bible all put together into one book. That is the canon of scripture. So canonization is how we came about those books of the Bible. <clears throat> There's a lot of debate between skeptics and believers and even people within the church about books that should be in the Bible, that shouldn't be in the, in the Bible, why certain ones are, why others aren't. We decided to put this episode right here between the Old Testament and the New Testament because I think people's main question um, is why books of the Apocrypha are in the Catholic Bible, but the Protestant Bible does not have the books of the Apocrypha. If you don't know what the Apocrypha is, um, it's books like First and Second Maccabees, um, so on and so forth, that are in the Catholic Bible in between the Old and New Testament, but aren't in the Protestant one. So we are going to tackle some questions about canonization today with our friend Dr. Michael Kruger. Nick, can you tell us a little bit more about Michael Kruger? Absolutely. I'm so excited to introduce him. Dr. Michael Kruger is president and Samuel C. Patterson, professor of New Testament and early Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. In addition, he is an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church in America and is married to Melissa Kruger, who is director of women's content at the Gospel Coalition. That's pretty dope. And his education is even more impressive. He has a PhD from the University of Edinburgh. He has an MDiv from Westminster Theological Seminary in California. And he has a bachelor's from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He is also on the editorial review board uh, for Bulletin for Biblical Research. He's also on the editorial review board for the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society. He is the president from 2018 and 2019, and president-elect from 2017 to 2018, and vice president in 2016 into 2017 for the Evangelical Theological Society. He is co-chair and co-founder of the New Testament canon, textual criticism, and apocryphal literature study section for the Evangelical Theological Society from 2007 until today. Yes, yeah, so uh, he's definitely probably the best person that we could turn to for this subject. Um, and without further ado, we are going to jump right into that interview. I hope you guys enjoy. Okay, so um, before we get into some of the, uh, I guess, controversial or tough questions about the canon, 
Can you basically give us a definition of canonization, what that is? Yeah, well, in my books, um, I work pretty hard to sort of define the term canon and talk about the process of canonization. Sort of informally, I would say it's it's the process by which the church, God's people, with the help of the Holy Spirit, recognize which books he has given them as an authoritative guide for uh, the church. Um, and so several things in that definition are important. Um, one, it is a process. Um you know, the canon is not something that just dropped from heaven and happened overnight, and that's always important for people to remember. Um, another very intentional word there is the word recognize. Uh, I'm sure that'll come up later in our conversation, but um, we don't believe that the church creates the canon or has authority over the canon, but recognizes and receives the canon. Uh, and, then, and then lastly, just the idea that the Holy Spirit's involved, not in a way that makes the church infallible but makes the church clearly guided by uh something more than itself and that's that's a key part of not only the church's role but also the holy spirit's active in the very books that are being received and so the holy spirit is the matchmaker if you will between the church and and, and the in the canon got it so you touched on it a little bit um but i guess kind of uh, diving a little deeper how are the books that we refer to as the canon chosen to be part of the canon yeah, well, that's a that's an enormous question. That is the question. Um, it's uh, the the question of how is is an interesting way you put it. it. It's not that hard to figure out when it happened, although that's debated. But but how it happened, or maybe even more to the point, why one book and not another, right. um, is the more complicated question. I would probably start by just simply tweaking the word chose, uh, and I, don't, I I know that that that's not intended in any particular way. But I know that a lot of people have the perception that. Uh, you know, the church kind of woke up one day and decided they should choose books and then went out looking for books and picked the ones they liked. And um, certainly the church played a role, but I always think it's important to start with recognizing that the word chose probably puts a little too much emphasis on what the church did and a probably too little emphasis on what was what was passed down to them or handed to them. And I think most people in early Christianity, if you ask them why they chose the books they chose, probably would look at you a little odd. Um, for example, if you went up to someone in the second century and said, why did you pick Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they would probably look at you like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. We didn't really pick them. It's not like we voted on them. It's not like there was a, a big decision that was made. These are just the books that were handed down to us from the apostles. So there is a sense then that the books were were, 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 were chosen. I suppose that's fine, but it's it, there's a sense in which the, the church just simply received books that were handed down to them and recognized the ones um, that God had intended for the church. And so uh, that's, that just gives you a broader perspective on, on the way it unfolded. Got it. So awesome. <clears throat> we know that there is a difference between the Protestant Bible and the Catholic Bible. So we were wondering why the Catholic Bible has books that the Protestant one does not have. Yeah, this is a common question. Um, and it's a question that comes up anytime you talk about the canon. It's technically an Old Testament question, not a New Testament question, which is fine. It's I'm happy to address it. Uh, you know, the Old Testament uh, collection of 39 books, at least that we have now, um, uh, was expanded on at, at a later point in church history, officially at least at the Council of Trent in the 16th century, which added the books we call the Apocrypha. Uh, the, the Apocrypha are, are, are really books that were written in what's called the intertestamental period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. Books like 1st 2nd Maccabees, Judas, Judith Tobit, uh, and others that uh, the Roman Catholic Church formally adopted as official scripture. Um, 
Now, in terms of why Protestants did not make that move, that's a long conversation. But the short version is uh, the, the Protestants decided to go with the canon that was uh, around during the time of Jesus and the apostles. In other words, the canon that was received from Judaism was the canon that, that Christians felt was the authoritative uh, uh, books that should be in our Old Testaments. Um, there's a lot more that can be said about how that all unfolded, but that's the, the essence of the discussion. Awesome. I'm glad you said it like that, actually, because that leads us to the next question. Didn't the Catholic Bible predate the Protestant one significantly? So how can, they, how can we then say that the Protestant Bible is the correct canon? Yeah, I guess it would depend on what someone means by the Protestant Bible and the Catholic Bible and, and predating. Um, you know, that when did the, when did the Roman Catholic Church come into existence? Well, that's its own debate. Um, certainly, um, you know, Protestants would would argue that the Roman Catholic Church and the way we we know it now was not really in existence until you know quite well into the Middle Ages. So it depends on what one means by by a Catholic or a Protestant Bible predating one another. The Protestants would simply say that when it comes to the Old Testament books, those predated everything because they they came from Judaism. Um, you can't get you can't go farther back than that. So prior to to Christianity, prior to the Church, prior to Jesus, the the, the Jews were using books as scripture, and that no one really doubts that. Um, and that canon was already in place before Jesus was even born. Um, and so that would that would be a canon that would predate both Protestant and Catholic. <laughs> And so on, on those terms, uh, that's the canon that would be the oldest. And, and, and at least Protestants would argue that's the canon that we have in our Bibles today. So speaking of Jesus, um, I wanted to ask, because I know that he quoted from the Subtuagint, and, and I'm specifically referring to Mark chapter 7, verses 6 through 7. And from what I understand, the Subtuagint includes books that we don't include in our canon, so isn't Jesus validating those books by quoting the Septuagint? Uh, no, not at all. I think that's probably not the, 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 the way that's phrased is probably just a little bit uh, would probably confuse people. Um, when we say Jesus, when, when someone says Jesus quoted the Septuagint, that, that's not technically accurate. Um, Jesus would not have quoted the Greek uh, Old Testament. Uh, most likely he spoke in Aramaic, first of all. Um, and when we say that, that the Septuagint was used in Mark, there's probably a better way to say that Mark used the Septuagint. Not that Jesus didn't quote that passage from the Old Testament, but we know that the Gospel writers, if they translated Jesus' words from Aramaic into Greek, may have appealed to the Septuagint they had in their time period. Um, even so, um, but even let's just grant for the sake of argument that Jesus spoke Greek and quoted from the Septuagint. That does not endorse the extent of the Septuagint at the time, because what people need to note is that Jesus only cited from books that occur in the 39 book canon we have now in our, in our Protestant Old Testament. So there's never a single time anywhere where Jesus quotes a book of scripture that doesn't occur in our current Old Testament. Um, and so I could just flip the question around. If in fact Jesus accepted all these other books that are in the Roman Catholic canon, why does he never, not even once, ever cite them as scripture? Hmm. That's, I think, a better way to ask the question. Uh, and then I could expand the question beyond that. If those books were, in fact, scripture in Judaism, why does Jesus never cite them? Why does the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders never cite them? Why do the apostles never cite them? Not a single time ever as scripture. So that's a significant problem. Um, and so when you look at it from that perspective, it actually spins it around um, and helps us realize that if those books are scripture, they, they, they certainly aren't obviously so at this time. Awesome. 
I mean, this this could probably be answered the same way, but how come the Apocrypha books are referenced in canonical books, such as the book of Enoch referred to in Jude and Second Peter and John as well? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, so, well, first of all, uh, Enoch is not in the Apocrypha. Um, so the Apocrypha adopted by the Roman Catholic Church does not include it. Um, and so we're talking about what's called a pseudepigraphical book, which is just a non-canonical book that was popular during that time period. And we know that there were non-canonical books circulating during this time period that were valued and appreciated and often cited and used. Um, in this instance, Jude uses it. You could argue that Second Peter alludes to it uh, and echoes it maybe at certain points, although that's debated, and we could get into that if someone wants to. Um, and same with First Peter. Um, regardless, though, uh, again, Jude is not cited as, as being canonical or scriptural. Um, there's no doubt there were books in, in circulating within early Jewish circles that people deemed to be what we would call mixed books, which would mean that they include some authentic words from God and probably some that weren't. Um, so some prophetic words that may be valid and go back to who they say they go back to and then other words that probably aren't. Um, the Book of Enoch would be just such a book. Um, no doubt a mixed book, probably certain things in it legendary, certain things that it may not have been, may, they may go back quite a ways. But there's no indication it was received as canonical or, or, or scriptural, um, and its appearance in Jude doesn't do that. Um, it just acknowledges that the book was popular and, and used pretty widely. Um, and we see that same sort of thing at Qumran um, and other other collections of Old Testament books during this time. Awesome. I think you mentioned this during one of your lectures as well. Just because something isn't, just because something is being used as useful, doesn't mean that it's being validated as scripture, right? Absolutely. And in fact, that's a that's a very important uh, principle that, that needs to be remembered in any discussion of the canon is, is using a book um, as helpful and and useful does not imply that book is to be received as scripture and canon. In fact, you'll find that in the early church, um, we have we have uh, intellectual heavyweights like Clement of Alexandria that that, that that showed this principle in spades. So, for example, Clement of Alexandria was was the genius of his time, extensively well-read, both in terms of Christian and Jewish literature and Greco-Roman literature, and would cite extensively when he would make his theological points from all kinds of sources. And he even would cite on occasion from apocryphal gospels. At one point, he even cites from the Gospel of the Egyptians um, as a useful uh, uh, tool. But then when you he, when he, when he whittle down to what his what his canon is, he's very clear that, that the Gospels he receives of Scripture are four and only four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So he, he demonstrates that principle pretty plainly, is that you can use and cite and lean on lots of books, but at the end of the day, which books are Scripture are, are really what matters. I wanted to ask a quick question before I ask the bigger question, because I'm no, I'm no expert on this at all. Ben Sirah, um, the Epistle of Jeremiah and... Tobit or Tobit? Are those all apocryphal books? Yes. Um, so uh, you use the term apocryphal as an adjective there. The better way to say it is they're part of the apocrypha, which is a formal collection of those intertestamental books we talk about. Okay. Um, apocryphal is an adjective that can can refer to any book outside the canon and also applies to New Testament books. Got so it. for example, the Gospel of Thomas is an apocryphal book, um, but obviously you know, second century or later and is about Jesus. Um, so it doesn't, uh, that, that doesn't, uh, that's not a book that's included in the Apocrypha, but yeah, those books are included. 
And you also notice that that over the years, this the the the, the books that are included in the apocrypha vary a little bit depending on which era you're in. Gotcha. So based on that, I was gonna ask you about the Dead Sea Scrolls because those three books were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. However, our book of Esther was not. So does that kind of bear any weight or does it show us that we got the canon wrong? Uh, yeah, not at all. Um, in fact, this, this is a similar principle that we were just talking about, which is having a book and using a book, having it in your library doesn't mean it's in your canon or not in your canon. Um, and by the way, it's not just those books outside the canon that were found at Qumran. We have tons of books outside the canon that were found at Qumran. Um, and uh, all kinds of pseudepigraphical works are found at Qumran. Moreover, we also have uh, uh, the, the, the writings of the sect itself. So assuming that the, the, the sect is the Essenes, which we don't know for sure, but we have um, basically uh, writings from that very group, um, theological documents and reflections and and all kinds of uh, sort of uh, sectarian works. So the the, the, the the literature of the Dead Sea Scrolls is vast. Um, the reason most people don't know that is because most of the time when the Dead Sea Scrolls are mentioned, we only just talk about the Old Testament books that were found there. But there was a big library of all kinds of books that were found there. Interesting. So it, it is true that it is true that Esther is the only OT book we don't have any fragment of. Um, I don't know what to make of that. I'm not, I'm not sure make much of anything of that. Um, it is possible that they didn't accept that book because it, it was debated at points. It's also possible that given Esther's small size, we just simply don't have any fragments left of it. Um, a lot of the a lot of the Dead Sea Scroll books are, are very fragmentary, and so it's just possible that we just don't have it, not that they rejected it. Um, think think of it this way: imagine imagine your theological library was buried in the sand for a thousand years, and someone dug it up, hmm. uh, and then they looked at what books are in your library, and concluded what your canon was. I mean, that wouldn't work. I mean, you know, you 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 wouldn't say, well, you know, I've got a commentary set from C. H. Spurgeon, and therefore C. H. Spurgeon's in my canon. Um, or that, you know, I have Calvin's commentaries and therefore I think Calvin is canonical. I mean, that, no one does that. You, you have a library that's a mix of books. Um, you'd have to interview someone to find out which ones they regard as scripture and which ones they, they just use as helpful. So doesn't that contradict the idea or the defense that we use that the amount of manuscripts that we have validate the canon? If there's some books that we just simply don't have that large number of? Well, it depends on what you mean when you say amount of manuscripts validate the canon. That We need to be very precise of what someone means by that. No, no one suggests that the canon is simply determined by counting manuscripts, um, and therefore the one with the most manuscripts is canonical. But, but we can look at the manuscripts to tell us what books were popular in early Christianity and which books were read widely, and that at least is an indicator of, of how the canon formed and which books are being used. Uh, and I talk in my book, Canon Revisited, about the manuscript distribution and how Christians were, were very much uh, reading and using the books that ended up in the canon much more than, than apocryphal literature. And the reason, reason that matters is because it eliminates a myth, which is that in early Christianity, it was a literary free-for-all, and everyone was just reading whatever they wanted to read, and all of it was equally central. And what I argue is, no, it doesn't seem that way at all. It seems like, for the most part, the books that ended up in our canon were read a lot more than other books. Now... Now, there's exceptions to that, right? Um, you know, we're really talking just about the core canon there. When we talk about books like Second or Third John, um, or, uh, you know, even to some extent books like James, you're just not going to have the same number of manuscripts. They were they were used a lot less, even though they were regarded as canonical. So it's a general observation um, that helps us understand the way the canon formed. 
I was going to ask because you mentioned um, that there was a little bit of debate on Esther. And then you also mentioned earlier that the Old Testament canon was just kind of handed down to, you know, second century Christians, so on and so forth. Wasn't there debates though and, and, you know, conferences or whatever you want to call it about what, what books of the Bible should be in the canon? Are you talking about Old Testament or New Testament? Both. There's always evidence that we have disputed books at various points in both Old Testament and New Testament histories. But I think one misunderstanding is that if a book is under discussion, some people think, therefore, there's no canon. Um, and that's not, that's not the case. We have evidence that Esther was discussed even within rabbinic literature for centuries after Christ. Um, does that mean that, that, therefore, there was no canon during the time of Jesus? I think not. Um, I think you can have ongoing discussions in certain quarters without indicating that there was no generally agreed upon canon. Uh, when we look at, you know, this is a larger discussion of Old Testament canonical formation, but when you look at the, the first century sources we have, and even earlier than that, there does seem to be a pretty established tripartite structure to the Old Testament canon, even during the time of Jesus. And just the consistency by which Jesus debates the Jewish sources during that time period, um, and and there's little disagreement over, or not little, no disagreement over the, the extent of the canon is, is just stunning. Um, you know, did Jesus disagreed with the Pharisees over just about everything. You would think at some point they would have a disagreement over which books are in the Bible, but they never do. Hmm. And that's that's just a curious fact that should be considered. So that's all our main questions, but I wanted to ask you, so are you sure that we have the correct canon? <laughs> <laughs> wow. I don't think ask it quite like that. You know, I sure. Uh, we, we, I'm not sure if you're looking for me to make some sort of pronouncement. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm certainly not going to do that. You heard uh, it here first. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, you know, do, I, do I think that? Do I think we as Christians have 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 great reasons to trust the canon that we have? Yes. Um, you know, despite all the attacks from modern skeptics that say, "Oh, you can't trust the book, the collection of books we have, and half of them are forgeries and this, that, or the other." I, I think the evidence is is very encouraging. So I think Christians can 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 uh, can take heart with that with that knowledge. Awesome, that's awesome stuff. Thank you so much for doing this. And if any of our listeners wants to get some more information about what you do, or some classes that you teach, or lectures, where can they go on to listen to more of your stuff? Yeah, so uh, best place to go is my website. Uh, it's uh, it's called Canon Fodder, and that's with one N. Um, it's a pun if someone doesn't understand the first name <laughs> Canon. Uh, so Canon Fodder, the URL is just michaeljkruger.com, or someone can just Google my name, they'll find it. On my website is, of course, my blog, but on top of that, I have uh, all, all sorts of articles, books, um, uh, bibliography, a bunch of videos and lectures and talks, plus speaking schedule and variety of things. So if someone wants to get more, that's, that's a good place to go. Awesome. Well, That's awesome. we really appreciate you being on the show. We all were really looking forward to this interview. We, we've all been really interested on this topic lately. For sure. So uh, thanks again for being on the show, and uh, I hope I hope you come on again in the future. Thanks, guys. I'd like to be back. Look forward to it.